Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Jay-Z Microphones. For over a decade, Jay-Z Microphones has combined all the critical elements of world-class microphone manufacturing, patented capsule technology, precision electronics, and innovative industrial design. Jay-Z Microphones' deep understanding of technology is informed by their open-minded, innovative approach. Trust us, sound can be glorious. Recording. For more info, please go to jzmike.com. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am Al Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuggah, Periphery, The Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more, and we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about a brand new product we just launched, the Complete Beginner's Guide to Recording Rock and Metal. It's a short, two-hour course hosted by Ryan Fluff Bruce, where he walks you through every single step of the process for recording a complete song from scratch in a simple home studio. If you've been thinking about getting into recording, but you weren't sure where to start, this is for you. He gives you a list of exactly which gear that we suggest you get, shows you how to set it all up, then gives you a step-by-step guide to record a guitar, bass, and vocals, and programming MIDI drums everything you need to record an awesome high quality demo with no more than a few hundred dollars worth of gear and just to make sure you have absolutely everything you need the course includes copies of toneforge menace and gain reduction by joey sturgis tones and a virtual drum plugin from drumforge that's over 200 dollars in software included with the course so it's pretty much a no-brainer if that sounds cool to you you can get instant access to the course and all the included plugins at recordingmetalguide.com. And one last thing I want to tell you about, and this is really cool, I want to tell you about a cool new partnership we've got with Empire Ears. They make a quality in-ear monitor that lets you bring your studio with you anywhere. Seriously, you can mix with these. And I know it sounds crazy for me to say, but it is absolutely true. If you're at all mobile with your audio or you are in a situation where volume is a problem, like you mix out of an apartment, you may want to check these out. And here's how it works. Basically, URM users are getting hooked up with an exclusive discount and personalized support. And think about it like this. How sick is it to be able to take your reference with you every single place you go? With Empire Studio Response Monitor, you can have a flat response sound you can trust every single place you go. So for more info, just reach out to Dylan at EmpireEars.com for details. That's D-Y-L-A-N at E-M-P-I-R-E-E-A-R-S dot com. All right, here goes. I will shut up now. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Brian Von Reuter, who is a musician and audio professional from the Bay Area in California. And the reason I'm saying audio professional is because he's got a job that 
we've never covered before, but is extremely fascinating, I think. And it just goes to show that if you have a passion for audio um, and you don't fit the producer template, that's okay. Uh, there's plenty of things that you can do in the audio world that are just as cool, just as, uh, I think, just as fascinating and just as captivating and just as useful, if not way more useful for the good of society than uh, being a producer. So basically what you would call Brian is an audio forensics examiner. And it's basically a discipline that seeks to uncover the truth in audio recordings that are submitted as evidence in court proceedings or other legal activities. So basically, Brian uses audio to make sure that people don't get wrongly convicted um, or otherwise. Does that sound right? Yeah, I answer questions about recordings so that advocates have the ability to make assertions and understand a recorded event. Got it. So, and you focus on working with defense attorneys, correct? Most of my work is from defense attorneys. There's the odd government agency. Like I do one project for the California Public Utilities Commission, and that's analysis of phone calls. Um, but in general, I like to work with criminal defense attorneys. What is it that drew you to that side of the legal fence? Um, well, so I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's the people, but it's also an alignment that I have toward criminal justice and protecting Fourth Amendment rights and not talking to the cops. But I'm a weirdo and an artist, and the weirdest, uh, most artistic people that I know are San Francisco Bay Area criminal defense attorneys. So they just seem like a good crowd to roll with. <laughs> I'm actually really interested to hear more about that because, you know, being that I know lots of artists, you know, that grew up around them, and I mean artists of all mediums, musical artists, visual sure. artists, uh, for the most part, they tend to have, a, you know, a sense of, I don't want to say anti-authority, but let's just say anti-authority. Okay. Uh, and... A lot of them do tend to have this uh, don't talk to the cops mentality, but that's where it ends. Like sure. They don't turn that into a career because they're more interested in making their their own music or, you know, their own art. They, they don't, I guess they don't feel uh, passionate enough about that, the, the justice and all that to actually pursue it. But what I think is really fascinating is that you you combine both the passion for audio with uh, an innate sense of justice and turn that into a career, basically. Yeah, sometimes it's about the justice and sometimes it's just about answering questions for money. Um, I am... Well, you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. But also, uh, to some degree, living a certain type of creative life can be a vow of poverty or you can go out there and employ your creative energy to go sell somebody else's shit or you can just dig into the work which is what I've been 
doing for quite some time. And so I'm really interested in, I've almost had a lifelong interest in digital audio, um, computers, computer music, and computer recordings. So I got super into DSP, and that kind of led me to where I am, where I found myself at a job where a lot of the clients were lawyers, and I've had this uh, skill set for audio processing. And at some point in time, those things were going to integrate. So when you say that the clients are lawyers, what does a typical client ask of you? Like a lawyer's coming to you, what do they need from you? It varies. Sometimes they uh, they need the answer to the age-old question, what did my guy say? So they have a recording and their client's been captured by that recording or their voices have. And there's sometimes it's intelligibility improvements. Sometimes it's authentication. Like, is the story of this recording accurate? And what types of recordings are they? Are they like wires that somebody wore or just a random phone call that happened to be recorded or? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All the above. I get. A lot of 8K mono telephony. Um, I get voice memo recordings, audio associated to body-mounted cameras like Axon Taser Flexes, uh, iPhone recordings, 911 recordings, uh, Nest uh, security recordings, uh, digital portable audio, voice memo, like literally anything that can record, which is most objects <laughs> seem to now be able to record. <laughs> Even if you don't know, they can. Correct, yeah. So the types of recordings, you know, it's it's kind of all over the place. But then I do get a lot of audio that's that's delivered via video. And so video is is sometimes the what the lawyer's focusing on or what the client, like, I've got this video, right? Can you take a look at it? And sometimes taking a listen to it or extracting the audio from it can give you a lot more valuable info than, you know, what the images show. Is it because the images can sometimes be very grainy, hard to sure, hard to make out? Or 15 frames per second versus 8,000. Okay. Or any number of uh, things, including the non-recorded portions of, of that file's existence like the the containers and the headers and the exif metadata and the file properties and things like that as well so walk us through uh, okay and this understanding that there's no typical day uh it sounds to me like you get all different types of media with all different types of cases uh but like if you had to think of a typical situation or or just think of one situation that sticks out uh, where you're given files and you have to decipher them uh, for an attorney. What does what does your day look like? How does it start? Um, what types of tools are you using? Like, sure. W- how do you dig in? So a typical day will be I get a phone call or an email, and it's either somebody I know or somebody who found out that they needed a service that I can provide. And 
they'll give me a file. So we could use one very specific example. So um, criminal defense attorney has a recording that was a voice memo recording, and they have it on an iCloud storage. And they tell me that there's this recording of my client. And my client was, he was arrested and put into a holding cell, read his Miranda rights, had not been processed, and had not done his his uh, intake at a jail facility. And somebody outside of that cell was recording with an iPhone. Uh, and it's kind of difficult to hear what my client was saying. And even worse than that, several months ago, without recognizing the value of it, I stipulated to a transcript that the government made. So, In layman terms, like he was admitted to jail improperly? No, he was put into jail properly and he was recorded. And there was a, there was a transcript made from that recording that the defense attorney looked at and agreed Yes, I agree that this is a transcript of the recording, mm-hmm. and I'm not contesting uh, your perception of of that recording or like the words that you typed. And so he gives it to me, and I I uh, accept the file, and then I note that file's properties, the dates modified. I create uh, an MD5 checksum, like a hash uh, value, and then I take notes of who sent it to me, what case it's involved with, and then a brief description of the information that was related to me by the client. And then I start doing the the basics of examination, which are first and foremost, in this case, it's a computer file, more importantly than anything, including the fact that it's a recording or an audio recording. So I take a look at that computer file and I uh, examine it and I try to determine, is this in the form that it was given to me consistent with a recording that came off of the device that they purport it to come from? And it turns Interesting. out, yes, this is, uh, it has the right type of header. It has the right you know frequency response, a bit depth. Everything looks like a standard audio coming off of a iPhone 6. And it looks like a second generation. The dates modified were after the date that it was created. And there's a iCloud hyperlink in the footer of, of the recording such that if you were on a Mac and you like right-click get info, you'd see the actual link from, from where it came from. So it's not the same thing as a uh, native source file that exists on the phone in its native state. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it everything checks out that this is what the attorney was told. So the story of this checks out. And then I take that recording. Real quick. So the reason that this is important is uh, because sometimes, I guess, there might is there a historical precedence for people... Uh, defense attorneys being given, uh, I guess, doctored files? Well, it doesn't necessarily even have to be as far as doctored. It can be, it could be forensically unsound. And the reason for that is, is less interesting. But 
there's a extreme importance placed on the chain of custody and the life cycle of of something that you wish to become evidence. So uh, I'll give you an example. If you were going to go record something, you might hit record and then put your phone in your pocket and then take a drive and then have that consensual recording where uh, you have a conversation that's that becomes relevant. You leave and then you turn it off and you realize, oh, I don't need this hour-long recording. I need this 11-minute conversation. But I didn't mm-hmm. want to be fumbling with my phone. So imagine in your mind, you're not super tech savvy, but you know that you've got like GarageBand and it might be higher quality than editing it directly on the voice memo app. Got it. So something like that. Or it could be, I was provided with this recording. Is this recording complete in its entirety or is there evidence that this was a portion of a larger recording? Um, if so, should I go about the business of asking for that larger recording? Or there's a there's a, a thousand reasons why something might not be tampered with, but also mm-hmm. might not be consistent with a native uh, source material. It might not be consistent with having come from that device. So if you uploaded it to the cloud and it transcodes, or if you file save in some program that's not, like, that the file isn't resulting in a format that's identical to the raw material. Um, it It's just the same as if you took these podcast recordings and then you know, put it into Audition or Pro Tools or something, then the result of that would be an export that's inconsistent with the original source material. But in this example that you're explaining, that's a pretty benign reason. Like you're just, you know, you're taking a source file that's an hour long with maybe 45 minutes of bullshit and cutting it down to 15 minutes so that people don't have to sit there through... 45 minutes of bullshit. So that's a benign reason. But are there ever malignant reasons for why this could be changed? Oh, of course there are. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd be curious to hear what some of those are, <laughs> if you if you can share them. Sure. One of the few government jobs that I've done, in, like I said earlier, involves um, the Utilities Commission, where there would be, I'm trying to think of how I can word this, so a company wants to rip you off. So they call and they say, hi, is this John Smith? And if they get an, the answer as yes or C or any affirmative response, they might take that affirmative response and then start applying it to you know, all kinds of questions that weren't stated on that call. So can I switch carriers on your behalf? Can I contact AT&T on your behalf? Uh-huh. Can, I, okay. can I bill you quarterly? So this is clear, like it's clear fraud that's being done. So creating an edit that that's right. uses your voice uh, and makes it sound like you're answering questions you didn't actually answer. Sure. Or prior to that, it was use any voice. <laughs> just <laughs> just go to your your palette of affirmative responses and pull one at random and then and then throw it in and uh that case specifically was interesting because it was multiple entities and there was this sort of cat and mouse game 
because uh, it wasn't a criminal thing. It was regulatory. So there's these 60 and 90 day windows between responses from the company that's being investigated and then the regulators who are investigating them. And uh, in this case, essentially what the regulators were saying is, uh, give us your third party verification, like this call may be recorded or monitored. Give me those recordings so that we can make sure that you're not ripping people off because we have all these people who are saying you're ripping them off. And originally that, you know, it did not take any kind of expert whatsoever to identify those as uh, total bullshit. As five different people. (laughs) Or as one person saying yes, and it's like the exact Yes, and uh, a bad <laughs> transient, like your VU would pop. Uh, you don't even really have to dig too deep into a spectrogram. Uh, sometimes things that are as comedic as the inversion of the polarity of the of the waveform. So just like a really hard, bad edit. Uh, and so the investigation was very simple. This is inconsistent with an original and it's very clearly edited for the following reasons. Uh, then they started crossfading uh, and kind of, I think they- They got have, better. They, well, they got audacity and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and at that point it became uh, a little bit more involved, but- so that's one good ca- one good case of uh, a recording not being what it purports to be, and then somebody asking you to prove that for money. That brings up the just out of curiosity. Um, I feel like if you were to play this out, it would start getting into that territory where you have to identify who is who is actually on a recording and ver- verify that it's that person. Um, how? accurate is it in uh, movies and TV shows when you have to, when someone recognizes or identifies a person based on their voice? Is that bullshit? Um, it's not bullshit, but almost in every instance that's, that I've seen, it's like this frequency analysis that happens. And then there's like a list that that scrolls up the right-hand side of their screen. And then it's just like, match detected and starts blinking. <laughs> and frequency analysis is not at all a usable way to do what they call voice prints or speaker detection or voice comparisons because, like, as you well know, the frequency response of a voice isn't static. Like, when you, to say words and to, to use your voice to make language is to modulate the frequency of your voice, right? It's to go high pitched and to go mm-hmm. low pitched. So you're not looking for any kind of patterns in the in in how high or low pitched your voice is, and you're actually not looking at the presence of acoustic information or energy in the form of the audio spectrum. So speaker identification is kind of interesting because what you're looking at is the absence of of sound. So the voice itself, uh, if you look at in a spectrogram rather than a waveform so that you could see the concentrations of energy they call formants, uh, it looks like a rake is is getting dragged from left to right on yeah. your screen. And the distance between 
the, you know, I, I guess in music it would be harmonics, but uh, the distance between those solid concentrations that kind of organize themselves into bands uh, is unique. So even as you go higher, low pitched, uh, essentially the distance between the tines of the rake isn't changing. Even as you make a scribbly shape in the sand, uh, you know, if if there's one tine missing, that'll show up on the impression. And so there are automated systems that can detect voices, but they tend to work better when the recording only contains a voice. So it's a somewhat manual process, and it involves generating long-term average speech spectrums, and it also involves just like noting the, and sometimes plotting the distance between the vocal formats. It's not at all uh, a very visually stunning or interesting uh, thing to look at. So it suffers from the same thing that almost every piece of technology suffers from when you have to depict it in uh, a movie or a television show, which is like, it has to look interesting. Yeah. Uh, What I've heard about these types of movies and TV shows is that, you know, because they're focusing on a hero or like two heroes um, and they have to get it done quickly, you know, (laughs) they have two hours to get an entire story. They basically boil down something that sometimes teams work on for long periods of time or one person works on but manually and for extended periods of time. Sure, they do the same process for the entire phase of the of a court case, uh, which is discovery, which is after you're arrested and before you go to trial, everyone has to gather information and then share it with each other. That entire process isn't really depicted in, uh, you know, it's like a DA has like one folder under his arm that he just got from the detective directly. Uh, who slammed it down on his desk and then 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 stormed out or something, which is uh, the the hundreds of hours, the databases, the sorting through things and the tagging of pertinent versus non-pertinent to a certain issue. All of that work of synthesizing this large volume of information and turning it into a small amount, uh, it's called the EDRM, the Electronic Discovery Reference Model. That entire process is completely ignored and for good reason because it's a tedious and boring process and it involves the the amount of effort that it involves is staggering how much longer does it usually take uh in real life as compared to a movie are we talking weeks no we're talking months okay (laughs) yeah you can't do that in a movie like like let's say if if you so your guy gets raided at work right Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the you know the next cut is is your guy starting trial. No, all of that stuff is uh, extracted. Uh, multiple types of databases are employed, and then people are are scouring through that information for inculpatory or exculpatory information, depending on whose side you're on. And then they have to share that with each other. And that's actually where a, the bulk of my work in the criminal defense mode, that's where that comes from, uh, is the discovery process. So like this came from the government, this came from my investigator. Can we compare these? Can we 
take all of this information and stitch together from the recordings some better picture of the recorded event. Got it. And, you know, I, I think that also, in addition to the fact that it's a very complicated manual process, like you said, uh, does it weigh on you at all that you're dealing with, you know, somebody's freedom and future? Is that Does that hang over the whole thing, I guess? Uh, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I kind of was talking about this with a colleague of mine the other day. It's like a tertiary, it's like a third level issue. Um, so the first 15 minutes or so, uh, it's not the exact same thing as desensitization, like as it relates to violent media or something like mm-hmm. that. Like, but there is sometimes if it's something gruesome or horrendous, which, uh, that's, that's the exception more so than the rule. Sometimes in that case, you know, you'll approach it as a human being and have feelings and, uh, make sort of emotional and psychic analysis, uh, and then, you know, the other 55 hours of, of work needs to ensue. And then you're just doing some sort of process. So, um, when it comes to reporting and to measurements and things like that, that are, that can be so important, oftentimes the meaning of the larger concepts of, oh, this per, like, this is a death penalty eligible case, or, oh, this involves a very young victim of violence or, or something like that. Um, those can be problems. Uh, but I understand, I mean, I understand that. And then at the same time, it's like anyone else going to work. Like I, I would say, uh, dealing with forensic, uh, recordings or sorry, dealing with evidentiary recordings as a forensic expert, is probably magnitudes of volume easier than being an EMT, for example. Yeah. You know? But there's also a, this tendency that we have to just make it about what are the questions being asked of me. Like how many male voices were present from this time to that time? Um, is this uh, consistent or inconsistent with gunfire? Like different questions become the focus rather than the sort of sad state of affairs that necessitates a legal system, right? I guess if you were to get too caught up in that, you wouldn't be able to properly do your job. Yeah, and I think that when people get too caught up in things, they're uh, not able to do their jobs, whether you're, you know, a whether you serve food or uh, advocate for victims or, you know, it literally doesn't matter what your job is. Sometimes you just have to break it down into the steps. It's just very, very true. I mean, even on, you know, the being a musician or a producer, if you, you know, say that you're in a high pressure uh, situation where you, you know, you're working with a band and say the band, uh, have one record to prove themselves on like they uh you know their last record didn't do well uh and this record is their last chance with this label for instance and you know they all have families and they all have houses and uh this is their livelihood if this record doesn't do well uh these guys are going to lose that livelihood 
Um, and that doesn't mean they're going to die or anything. They're just going to have to figure out something else. But still, you know, that would suck if sure. that had to go away. And so it's kind of on you and them right then in that moment doing something great that will save them from that bad situation. And if you let that get to you, uh, you're going to psych yourself out and not do as good of a job. So it's. I think it's true anywhere. I think you're right. Yeah, and... There's, there's a funny situation that sometimes happens where it's like, uh, for instance, if I'm doing a forensic transcript, which is like doing transcription with the added benefit of being able to make adjustments to the recordings so that you could more easily hear it and then put those uh, words on screen. And sometimes somebody will be saying something super gruesome, but you're actually just listening hard for where when one word stops and then the next one begins. And all of a sudden you get this, this sensation or like, like this idea comes to you, like, should I be more affected by what's being said here? And it's like, no, I'm not actually, I'm just working. So on the secondary level, like I'm, I'm fine. Like I'm safe in my office, uh, looking at a computer screen. And then it's like, but is that mellow? Is the fact that I'm not at all sort of hyperventilating at, at a situation that might require hyperventilation if you're like looking at it as a human being with feelings. Um, and in that situation specifically, it's so easy just to go back to work and then to think about those things later. And I think that's a, a skill that, you know, every professional has to, um, develop in the sense that there's a, a time and place for for different modes of being and there's a time and place for processing there's value in processing later uh, the emotional you know portion of uh, the narrative around a case or the um, relationships uh, with the with coworkers or bandmates or or anything else it's like uh, just try to get a sense of uh, when should you be doing that? And it's not when you're counting frames or um, making notations of of, fi- of file signatures or or making an emergency landing. <laughs> oh yeah, or overdubbing a tricky rhythm, or like you know. So yeah, so just do that later. Is that something that you taught yourself how to do, or does it just come naturally? Sometimes the urgency of the work, like causes it to come naturally. Like you're looking at the clock and you're like, wow, it's Tuesday at 12.38. We're not very far from Wednesday at 9 a.m. when when I made a commitment that uh, there would be a report done. Let's, you know, you're just so busy. Ain't got time to bleed. Exactly. Like, we'll sort this out later. That's one of the best lines in a movie what, What's that from? Because I ain't got time. I, it's from Predator. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Jesse Ventura says it. I ain't got time to bleed. But it's just, uh, it's it's true for so many different things. It's just if the work is intense enough and important enough, you don't have the time to worry about how you're feeling. I was doing a wrongful death case where somebody, this is great, the, the term of art that was used 
by the opposing counsel was... What's a term of art? Uh, a, a turn of phrase, like... Um, okay. He failed to regain consciousness when he was in police custody. He lost consciousness and failed to regain it. But in that case, uh, a lot of the questions that I was being asked was related to time. So it was validating the time signatures versus the on-screen display of multiple body-mounted cameras where um, if you stitch them all together and validate uh, using both the metadata file properties uh, and the activity depicted on the screen to to take many pieces of media and uh, validate one overarching timeline. And the goal of that was to answer the question exactly how many minutes, seconds, milliseconds uh, was it between when somebody was identified as not breathing and when aid was rendered to him. And the reason they were doing that is because they wanted to place liability on uh, the idea, they wanted the idea that that was a, a negligible uh, amount of time the, the police did. Like uh, their idea was we rendered aid uh, in a timely fashion and the plaintiff said, no, you didn't. Uh, you should have started CPR right away. And it was this amount of time between when you identified that there was a problem and when you started to render aid. And so the fact that that it's a wrongful death situation. It's a supercharged emotional um, idea. Like, you know, somebody lost their life uh, because of a police interaction. That has to kind of go away when what you're actually doing is uh, synchronizing, like, the movement of a left hand uh, so that you could validate that the on-screen display of two separate pieces of media were accurate and then comparing that to the log files of the management console that was um, that was administering all of these different recordings and backing them up and all of these moving pieces and really sort of tricky technical questions are being asked with this really lofty, depressing sort of uh, backstory, which can easily recede if you immerse yourself in solving the puzzle of, uh, like, did one of these have an internal time clock that was off relative to the other, or were they the same? Or am I locking the exact frame of when somebody turns to their left? Like, it's it's it's... It's both a sort of a video editing challenge and an audio sync challenge. And it has almost nothing to do, uh, very quickly, it has almost nothing to do with this, um, you know, really emotionally charged situation. So one thing that's just coming to mind right now, hearing you talk about this, and I've I've thought about this before, but this just kind of reinforces it, is... I try to not have too many opinions about when I hear of an acquittal or a conviction in the news, in any situation, really, uh, whether it's a wrongful death or a murder or some politician or, you know, whatever it is, I try to not have too many opinions because there's so much work 
going into it that I don't see, that I'm completely unaware of, that the public will never know about, that goes into proving or disproving this, that I don't know, how can I even have an opinion on it? It's so uninformed. Uh, and so I, ju I just think about the level of work that you're putting in to, uh, to verify sure. this evidence or, or not verify it. Yeah, or to confirm or disconfirm a, an assertion. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I definitely agree that there is a lot of uh, hidden effort but also, I get asked a lot, like, is it okay with you that you work with criminals? And I'm, and I'm thinking, like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, uh, at my core, I think that um, it does not matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter how guilty or innocent you are, your Fourth Amendment rights uh, deserve protection. So they can't lie about you. Um, falsify evidence. They have to give you your Miranda rights. Um, they have to collect things in a sound manner that's admissible and repeatable. And if they don't do that, people aren't found innocent. There's no finding of anyone innocent. So don't break people's Fourth Amendment rights. Do your job the normal right way. And then I believe that people uh, who are who are accused of a crime. They should get a strong and competent defense. If they did it, it should be self-evident, and the evidence against them should be unimpeachable, and people shouldn't cheat just because you're trying to catch a crook. And uh, so most of the work that I do on behalf of criminal defense attorneys involves the ultimate question of like what happened, and then they want a report that supports uh, my opinions about what happened. And you don't come to those opinions lightly. You use standards to develop them, and then you show your work. And oftentimes, you know, it ends up correcting when people are overcharged or when they're charged uh, in a situation that's related to leverage uh, or it's not related to the evidence against them. Um and I think that for a very long time, people have assumed and they've been correct to assume that the standards being developed by the government and the energy and research and efforts uh, are coming almost exclusively from the government. That, that if you're going to defend yourself, you should have the ability to do the same sort of analysis and to get the same sort of opinions uh, to analyze evidence to keep one side honest. And that's really important. And I don't see enough people in uh, the forensics domain or sort of in the forensics community giving as much attention to plaintiffs and criminal defense that like things that are more sexy, like, you know, like intelligence and uh, politics and, and opining about news stories and things like that. Well, you know, I think that at least from the public perspective, I understand where their where the public's moral dilemma is with with that whole issue of protecting criminals. But the the thing that I'll always say to somebody is, what happens when your life gets turned upside down 
and you find yourself on trial for something you didn't right. do. What happens then? Are you going to want them to cut corners and get you convicted fast because that's you know because there's some narrative in the news about you, or do you want the system to work for you and give you your shot? Or like, do you still have uh, Fourth Amendment rights? Like, is it okay to cheat when investigating you? Like, that's that that matters. But also, I sleep just fine uh, knowing that I've produced work product that advances the advocacy for guilty people. I sleep perfectly fine for multiple reasons. I couldn't move the needle through my efforts toward sane incarceration levels or toward, you know, to sort of balance out how many people are are sitting in jail right now versus uh, in mass how many should be. Um, also, I believe that, you know, a, an excellent defense should not be able to change the material facts about how did this come about? What is this evidence against you? And ultimately, did you do what you were accused of? You can later talk about uh, should what you were accused of be a crime. That, I'm, not, I'm less interested in that. But I can't answer enough questions to make a guilty person innocent. But I can answer questions that illuminates um, deficiencies in the collection of that evidence. And those aren't okay. Basically, if you're representing Ted Bundy, no matter how well you do, he's still Ted Bundy. Sure, absolutely. The question wouldn't be, how do you feel about Ted Bundy? It would be, can you authenticate this audio? Mm -hmm. And it might have something horrible, and it might have been excerpted. And uh, determining, measuring, and then stating the qualities of that excerpt has nothing to do with uh, whether something's been edited or not has nothing to do with uh, the meaning of what's depicted on that. Yep, that makes perfect sense. Uh, that that makes perfect sense to me, at least. Uh, and I'm really curious, how did you get into this? That This is obviously something that uh, you're very passionate about, and it's interesting, it, passionate about being dispassionate. Sure, absolutely, almost. yeah. But this is obviously, you know, you know, this is kind of, at least at this point, it's your life's work, but how did this come about? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't quite know. Um, so I played in bands for years, and uh, I write music on mainly computers and other pieces of technology, field recordings and whatnot, and was really interested in DSP from, from my first interactions with it, but also... Uh, in digital art in general, like I remember in preschool or kindergarten, you know, starting with the Apple IIe and by second grade, I was rocking the logo uh, sort of ray tracing program. And I was a 2GS kid. 2GS, there you go. And just totally captivated and interested in, you know, I started making music on the computer. I think I was probably 13 years old. And that had always been a something that I did as a sort of self-prescribed practice. And I feel like I'm the primary recipient of a lot of the music that I make, or like in some ways that I'm channeling the music that I make. And I think that it's incredible music. And I think that it's been sort of custom designed for one person to really engage with and think it's incredible. So like 
to me, I've made London Calling or sports or whatever. Your I've own made, version for I've you. made the best record anyone could ever make as long as they're me <laughs> thinking that. That's actually a really, really deep way to look at at it because there's, I don't know, I feel like if you actually make music that's true to you, uh, you should be doing that sure. every time. Whether or not, you shouldn't trick yourself into thinking that the rest of the world thinks that. But for you, it should be that. Uh, David Lynch has a lot to say on this, that I and I love it. He's talking about George Lucas, and he says, I conjure ideas. He says something like, I conjure ideas, and my ideas make films, and I'm good at making films. And George, he conjures ideas, and he makes films. And the difference between us is that his ideas generate hundreds of billions of dollars <laughs> and mine are kind of weird and and I, I I understand that deeply but I'm also not deceived into thinking that what I think is super powerful important and vital music uh, is gonna have a life cycle that extends too far beyond me especially thinking soberly about people who are like legitimate musical heroes of mine we're dealing with people who are maybe, not quite even middle-class individuals. And like I said before, there's to some extent this vow of poverty that happens when you want to truly follow the path to make a creative life that involves self-prescribing and making art and music for yourself. Sometimes that's uh, incredibly culturally salient. And then sometimes it totally diminishes the joy when you start involving other people in it or sharing it with the world. And not to be precious about it, I think it's actually kind of the oldest thing that that we do is like self-prescriptive music. Uh, like, you know, fiddling on the porch or going to the family piano or gathering around the radio and singing along, whatever it is, or scraping on the side of the cave. Um, I think that like folk music or like self uh referential like self beneficial music is really important and it's a missing piece uh to a lot of people's sort of thought life and and lives in general i'm not deeply passionate about taking my ambient noise thing and going out and trying to monetize it or turn it into a a scene of somebody else's film or having it like sliced and diced and listened to in segments in streams or anything like that. That's a crucial part of making it your career is having that passion for it being your career. It's actually, I just had someone on the podcast, a Berkeley professor, neuroscientist, who she used to work with Prince. Uh, her name's Susan Rogers. I just had her on and she's really, really brilliant. And we were talking about what it is that set people like Prince apart. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are lots of talented people out there. Uh, I mean, he was super talented, but it wasn't just his musical talent. It, he also had this commercial sensibility sure. and this passion for the for all of it. He had a passion for the career side of it too. Like that was that was just as much a part of it as the music. And I mean, the music was, you know, was a huge part of it too. Like, it's not like he was all career and not music. He was great at all of it, but all of it was important. It wasn't like he was just doing it for himself and that's where it ended. 
Right. And that's very much what I'm, what I'm doing is I feel like I'm receiving this thing and that as soon as it becomes sharing it or like tending to that, like, uh, like, like you said with Prince, like he, he was attentive to, uh, every aspect of his life focusing on that music. And I think in my case, it tends to be like this palliative like it's not, it doesn't like, I, I'm not like one of these like shamanic, like music heals, but it is palliative to me. Like it, it, it provides a sensation that like I feel better and that, that can be a really important thing. It also provides it like affords this space for me to be terrified or like start to occupy the part of you that isn't human or doesn't have a body uh, or like whatever it is, uh, go into flow state or f- uh, feel um, holiness or however you want to conceive of it. Um, that's very much the mode. There's like this reverential mode and it, it doesn't work for people when I haven't put in the effort to somehow um, leave that state and then become its custodian. Like when you see a front man, uh, essentially what they're doing is they're saying like, this is going to get X, Y, and Z, like energetic, weird, soaring, how, whatever you want to put on it. Like mm-hmm. I am the rational um, guide here. You're like you're safe with like, I will be directing you and I'll be manipulating your emotional states so that you're going to go on this ride. I'm not going on the ride. I'm driving you and I'm in charge. And that's what makes a good uh, a performer. And that's what makes like this, like sort of like evangelical, almost like I have to share this, this information needs to be transmitted to you. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I'm being very honest with myself, what I'm doing is trying to, uh, I'm trying to tune the antenna over in the corner so that I can get, so that I can receive. And I'm very much not uh, in charge of it. I'm subject to it such that when I play live, I think when I'm finished, there's this like look of concern that people have. I'm like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? That was awesome. Like, don't be worried (laughs) about me. Did you not just hear that? Right. And that kind of having that experience over and over again really solidified to me that it's like, oh, this is very much a practice that's important for me and can't go away. But it's not something that I'm at this point um, involving other people. Like it's not other people's business right now. Um, And I'm not trying to be overly precious about that. That sounds very mature and rational and realistic. Uh, You know, just sorry to keep going back to another episode, but it's just we were just talking about this. It's just so relevant. So one of the things that we also talked about was how in order to become a prince or a huge star, it's not just about making the music. You also have to be just as worried about how other people consume that music. That's right. And... If you're not concerned with that part, you're going to have a real hard time making it a career. And also, if other people's consumption of it isn't something that you're really in tune with or care about that much or not figuring out or for some reason your music is just not for other people's consumption, like whatever it is, that's okay. But what's important is realizing it and not getting delusional. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, if you're confused into thinking, like if you're doing a self-prescriptive, like if you're making, I see this all the time, like people are working harder than anyone else and they're so proud of it. 
and they think it's the greatest thing in the world, but they're not tending to uh, other elements. Uh, like th- they're not helping anyone uh, tap into what they're receiving. Uh, it might just be that you're making like congratulations. You might be making the oldest most important form of music, which is this self-prescriptive music, like, congratulations, like, you've just tapped into that caveman thing. Like, it's not bad at all. I think it's where folk, I think it's what folk music is. Um, like, it's not till we started capturing, recording, and sort of like, you know, like, there's this, like, invasiveness, I think, in consuming that type, I mean, I call it folk music, but I'm that type of private music. Um, and that's a different thing than music that seeks to communicate and seeks to communicate really salient, really powerful, important things. Um, like I need that. Like I need people out there doing that. I'm not confused into thinking that in this mode with this sound palette that that's what I'm engaging in. Sounds like you knew that from a young age. Well, I had a big brother that was really important to me. And he's like, he's four and a half years older than me. And, you know, he's the guy who like gave me all of my musical knowledge and also set me on the path of like understanding that, um, you know, like these powerful moments that I was having with just like cause and effect. And, and it's very normal kid shit like you know flicking the doorstop and watching the uh intervals decrease and and this sort of doppler effect or getting handed weird records and and just kind of like scoping those out and it started this um this interesting sensation that listening is this like really powerful way to tap into something like just listening more and listening differently and then employing as many tools as you can to listen like that can be an interesting uh, way to be and so it's okay if you have different practices for that that fulfill different purposes and for me I would fear that there would be too much lost in the in me receiving the music uh, that that sensation would have to 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 yield to, okay. Well, how can I take this kind of abstract, noisy, dense, uh, you know, knobs to the right, ambient noise, and then monetize it? It's like first and foremost, I'm going to look for somebody to chop it up and throw it in their movie, and second, I'm going to try to get myself on as many arty noise related. Uh, I'm going to go about the work that anyone would do for any kind of music. And just the thought of that is so unappealing to me because it's such this mysterious thing at its core that the counterpoint to it is that using the same tools, um, employing the same technology, um, I can snap back to this sort of like one second per second, one body per person analytical scientific uh, mindset and it informed like those those modes inform each other but they're really parallel tracks so it's you're using your expertise still you're using that same i mean maybe it's not the exact same creative energy but you're using 
that thing that you devoted so much time sure. to uh, and those skills just in a different way uh, and a way that you feel good about using day in, day out and for other people. So I think that's the perfect yeah. scenario. And I, I wish that everyone found that for themselves. And you know, it's funny in in pursuing the audio and video forensics, I, I stumbled across, I think, the most important creative discovery of my life, which was the spectrogram. Like I could never in in my wildest dreams compose music without it any longer because it's like the only way that I really actively perceive music. It's not in the form of like skeuomorphic like knobs that go from left to right or sliders that go up and down. Or um I don't perceive like the the creation of music in terms of like sheet music or keys or or like strings, like I literally think of it as an image, uh, and it's infinitely scalable. You can go to different localized um, neighborhoods of time and frequency, and then you can make adjustments uh, to the visualization of that spectrogram that are unique to you know what gold you're digging for, and so. I very much introduced myself to that stuff in the in the context of audio analysis, but now it's uh, incredibly important um, to my creative process too. And it's that's really interesting to me is that like it's like this one it's this thing that once people are introduced to extra dimensions, it really changes the way they're able to perceive of things. But I feel like I've gone native in the spectrogram, and now as I listen to things in real space. Like I can more or less conjure their basic shapes. And that's a very satisfying thing. It's like it's like being blind and then suddenly um, having the ability to see. So question I have is you have your music, you realize that it's not fit for mass consumption, nor do you necessarily even want to go down that path. You have all these analytical skills, uh, these <laughs> unique set of skills. Uh, where does the forensic part come in? Like, how, does, how did that even happen? So I was in bands, working at copy shops, making flyers, doing that thing that we know so well, and started scanning documents and real quick, you realize that if you want to grow into adulthood, uh, litigation scanning is the road into that. And very quickly... How did you make that connection? It was just more money. So like I had been a scanning operator for a, no for a number of years, working at places like Kinko's and, and things like that. At this point, not going to school, making weird music with a band, but actually having more powerful moments during their smoke breaks, making strange ambient interstitial passages with the feedback in the room and whatnot and just all about hanging out with my friends making music with my friends recording my friends making art with my friends and uh pretty quick we're realizing that you know i need to start scanning these more expensive projects that that that's all of those boxes uh in order to get a decent paycheck and so the litigation scanning turned into a field called litigation support, which is scanned documents, seized hard drives. So the databases that connect imaging, like scanning, was the road into forensics. Because uh, once you start 
dealing with electronic discovery and seized hard drives and scanned documents and now extracted like cloud storage and you know emails in, in subpoena responses a lot of times processing all of that stuff together it gets lumped right in there with the scanned documents i had a number of years where i was doing electronic discovery and super into audio researching audio and then uh eventually uh i think around 2009 this case came across my desk when I was working for this um, electronic discovery vendor. And it was all of these incredibly poorly recorded uh, body wires. And it was in a very specific dialect. And there were two levels of transcription happening, one by just a standard transcription service and one that was a second pass for like the El Salvadoran gang slang um, and they're not in the business of complaining about like the skateboard that the kid is going to the meetup or like the fact that he's crunching and icy for a good 40 minutes of it. And I started to realize that the budgets for these transcriptions were just going out of control on these multi-defendant cases. And at this point, I'm still just totally segregating my pursuits like just I've got this job and it supports me being able to be in bands and go on tour um had this girlfriend and then wife who was a, a painter and a sculptor and you know it was just this thing that I did it was just a gig that I had like like everybody else but real quickly it almost sort of like this natural progression of uh People who were like, hey, you have a weird recording or if it's in some some funky format or um, you get this autoplayer EXE disc and you can't double click on it and it doesn't work on VLC. Can you help me out here? I don't know what I'm dealing with. And just the processing and the familiarity with the hodgepodge of, of recordings started to culminate in, in me thinking like, what the hell am I doing um, if I if I continue down the path of electronic discovery and digital forensics, then I'm going to be snooping through people's phones and and hard drives for a living, which I have just next door to zero interest in doing. Um, but I love working in audio. I love handling weird transcoding problems. Um, I love uh, ingesting and outputting material. But a lot of it doesn't yield itself to that. A lot of it doesn't become uh, easily understandable or just something that you could double click. So just access to lots of digital recordings that were used as evidence, um, something kind of clicked in my brain. And my, my first way in was the development of trial exhibits. So like taking DVD, raw DVD files with menus that you could you know, put inside your player and use with a remote control and just transcoding those and creating snippets. Um, sometimes that's easier said than done, depending on what kind of archaic system it comes from. So I just started to learn about what types of evidence were out there and what am I seeing over and over again? Things like jail calls and, um, you know, the Axon Taser Flex and all these different... So you basically just taught, you kind of created it for yourself, I want to point something out that's really, uh, really cool. So the job at the coffee shops, 
that's something that a lot of people would consider a dead-end job. And you used it to to create a career. You used it to basically get to the next step and then the next step and then the next step and figure out a career that involved everything you were good at uh, and that you're actually passionate about. Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is because a lot of people who want to do stuff in audio or music or you know uh, whatever creative pursuit might have dead end, what they consider to be dead end sure. jobs. And I think that the problem isn't, I mean, sometimes there are some dead-end jobs, but I think the problem more is that they're not using their imagination enough and not thinking about how they can use what situation they're in to create a better future. Sure. Um, and not thinking about how it can evolve. It sounds to me like you saw how that could be a dead-end career, so then you thought about, well, how can I make this better? So that's the legal scanning, and then you thought about how to make that better, and then better, and then eventually you ended up with what you're doing now is what it sounds like. Sure, and the good news for that was that in those same years, as I just became, I started eating it up. I was just reading white papers and discussing it as much as I could, and learning as much as I could about recorded evidence. And just there were a number of just sort of mind blowing, like revelation, not really revelations, but just information that you get that you get excited about and that propels your interest. And so if you, if there's something that propels your interest, it was counterintuitive to me. Um, just being just a kid, my, my, like really culturally, I was raised my, by my brother who's a punk rocker and, um, super interested in sound and active listening and started listening to like weird noise and lowercase records and like shoegazy creation stuff and got super into, you know, weird noises and digital signal processing. Um, all of that is very much like it's one portion of my thought life. But then I, I didn't even understand that there was an analytic side to it because I had told myself, you know, I hate school. Like the only thing important for me is making stuff with my friends. But then I, I learned uh, so much and I just got so excited that it became self-evident. Like the, it, it was like this stumbling, almost stupid path that, that just following your nose and then working really hard to learn um, because as somebody who wasn't educated at the time, I took responsibility for not being a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? Like, like, and mm -hmm. the internet was starting to happen and, and you could just learn anything that you want to learn. And you can just call somebody who knows, like you could just ask them. And there was like this, um, it was like a radio lab episode where he's talking about, I think he was trying to do an episode about colors. And he's like, I need like a choir that could do octaves. Uh, but there's no way we can get that. Like the episodes due in four days or something. And then he's like, it just hit me. Like you can call a choir. In my case, you can just call the person who developed the platform for this weird file format. Like you can just ask the person a question or you can just, you don't know something about it, get the manual, look at the author, contact the fucking author. Like they'll be delighted and a little bit weirded out that anyone's contacting them and- Bend the universe to your will. Exactly. Just do, like you can hire a choir. <laughs> and part of that is about uh, curiosity 
and it's about uh, like this thirst. It's like uh, in hindsight, it looked like like analysis of digital recordings. Like, what is there to be passionate about? But a- as it turns out, uh, it's an endless rabbit hole. And people who are smarter than you are working on it and have been thinking deeply about it, no matter what it is, no matter what niche it is, like there's a road in for you. And there's, in my case, the water was warm. And when I started to seriously get into it, it was a, it was in its, in its infancy. I'd say it's still in its infancy, um, digital audio forensics and in subsequent years, I, I was kicking myself. I was like, I should have fucking gone to school because now there's a master's program for what I'm interested in and have been practicing for a number of years. And so now I'm kind of kicking it into high gear um, and there's more things to learn. And it's it's fantastic. But it is, as soon as you find that thing where um, there's joy in the idea that there's more things to know... And like anyone who's known a drummer uh, has easy access to that joy <laughs> or like, you know, a, a guitar shredder. It's like, oh, my God, I can there's a new technique I can try. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy, URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album, and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy enhanced to find out more. Yeah, if you don't feel the way they feel about whatever it is you're doing, then you should re-examine it. However, that depends on what you want out of life. I mean, if what you want out of life is a very balanced, like very balanced to life where you don't have a consuming type of job where you can focus more on hobbies and things like that, that's okay too. Uh, I think it kind of just back to what you were saying earlier about being realistic about you know your own music. I think you, you need to be realistic too. Like following your passion, I think is a very, very smart thing to do if that's 
if you're willing to do what it takes to bring your passion to life. Um, if you're actually willing, and that's actually something you want, because I think sometimes people don't, they haven't thought it through, and the reality of, of having to dive deep on something for years might not be, you know, might not be in line with their actual life plan. But if it is what you want, if that's the kind of life you want, then I think you have to find that thing that gets you, that gets you going. Uh, for me, it was, it was this URM thing, which was a total surprise. Yeah. Because I never, I, you know, I thought I was going to be a musician, uh, and I was into that, and I kind of thought I was going to be a producer too. But when I started doing the online education thing uh, in like 2013, it got me in a way that music and production never did. Uh, it was I was way more motivated to make it work uh, for some reason. Um, I just I went. I've always gone to great lengths to make things work, but there was something different about this. It felt way more right. Uh, and way more, like I always felt like there was something missing when I was doing music. I felt like there was something missing, like it was too selfish. And when I was doing production, uh, it was cool, but I felt like there was something missing because it wasn't scalable. Uh, and so with this, it kind of combined everything and I rolled with it and it's been the most successful thing I've ever done. And I think that it's because of the, you know, there's a few different things, like got in at the infancy of online education and also uh, very passionate about it, have all these years of expertise in music and audio and have all these connections and all that. It all works together. But if I didn't have the the passion and the desire to have this kind of uh, career, then it wouldn't have worked, in my opinion. And I think it's a similar thing with uh, with what you're describing and I think it's important for people listening who do want to do something in audio or something creative who don't see themselves being like that popular producer uh, or or maybe that's just not the type of personality they have because you know you could be a very talented producer but if you don't have the right personality for it it might not work um, there might be something else that you can do with audio that's still fucking rad. Absolutely, yeah. You just have to do the self-work, the self-discovery part of it. For me, when I recognized that the mains hum or like the 60 cycle hum uh, had a cause and what its true expression was or what it actually meant, it was like this road into like a, this crazy, amazing world of, you know, audio analysis and electrical engineering that I like wasn't prepared. I, I didn't, I didn't self-conceive of my, uh, of, of my purpose involving analysis. Like I, you know, my favorite bands are like Throbbing Gristle and My Bloody Valentine and like Tim Hecker. And, you know, like I'm not like my brother is a punk. My wife's a painter and I'm from the Bay Area and I'm deeply interested in like in deep weirdness. And I just didn't see myself as somebody who would uh, perform analysis for a living. But then I just uh, continued to follow my own questions like what's going on there? What is that about? And 
I realized that I not only had a knack for it, but it was, um, if I'm paying attention and tending to sort of like my awareness of where my value is or like how can I be of service? How can I help? Uh, I'm most valuable in the space of audio analysis and in video analysis as well. And that, that was a true surprise to me. It's really about, um, being malleable enough to realize that like something can fulfill you, uh, even though it doesn't seem very cool or it doesn't uh, necessarily fall perfectly in line with the the mental image that you have of yourself. Which is just a preconceived notion. Yeah, that's just narratives that we're making up. And that you may have made up at a really young age, Absolutely. like a, in teenage years where you don't even know yourself yet, where your brain's not even physically totally developed yet. And, uh, it, and you're, set, you're determining your identity as, uh, as an artist and a human being at that age. It doesn't make sense. I fixated. I, I had this strange um, combination. Like I was an extroverted, loudmouth who grew up in a kind of a chaotic, I guess it's like a fire hose sort of life method of talking and information coming back and forth and like the pace of my my childhood life was rapid and in the midst of that I would fixate on things and it would like uh my ADHD would manifest itself in this tunnel vision that I would have on something um and I was like the kid that could like you know once I made a tape loop, like I could play it 300,000 times <laughs> and active listening was really important and, and like small physics, like dropping a ping pong ball on the floor. Like it was just this, this way into uh, frequency analysis and, and those types of like the biggest, oldest, most um, difficult to express thoughts that were going on in my life happened before I was given information that these things are bad, like these fixations are bad, or like the rapid, like the speed of which I sort of uh, spew out uh, things that I'm interested in or stories or whatever were um, indicative of this kind of like unsettled mind or this hyperactive mode. But uh, in actuality... It's like my propensity to be enthused and fixated on something plus my intense energy was really fertile territory for spending a lot of time with a very short uh, recording. Like, you know, when I'm doing intelligibility improvement projects, you know, I've probably listened to something three, four, five thousand times. I believe it. <laughs> and I'm playing the filter game. I'm like daft punking it between noise and words. Uh, and to, and just trying to find uh, in the spectrum, like like where does this target live, and what are its harmonics, and just this obsessive like a being. And if that's something that that you get excited about, of just staying on something far past what appeared to be reasonable or profitable, <laughs> that's actually my value as a person in the professional space. Like, like that's a superpower that I didn't know that I had. That I always thought of it as being related to this like weirdo kind of headspace. Gotta just make that weirdo headspace work for you. It's a thing that I've literally turned into the best shot that I have at providing for myself. And it's the most value that I can be to people. And it's awesome. So question for you, you brought something up earlier that I 
really wanted to ask you about. Because when we met at San Pierre's place, you talked to me about this. You just brought it up, and it really blew my mind. Uh, so you were just talking about 60 Cycle Hum and how you learned that it meant something. And you were telling me at San Pierre's place, and, you know, I'm going to butcher this, mm-hmm. so... I'm just going to try to remind you of what you were talking about so that you can say it properly. But uh, you were talking about how the 60-cycle hum uh, is unique to a certain timestamp worldwide or countrywide. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I would butcher it. But like, what you said something that blew my mind. What was that? So mains hum can be a couple of things, right? It can be a transmission of some type. Uh, Rarely, like your pickups can start getting things from the radio <laughs> yeah like the radio or things that you don't understand but that don't seem like they're noise and then in addition to that you could have a ground loop and we always call that mains hum and it's just the sound of the wall or it's just it's just this no one really knew what it was and as it turns out what's happening when something picks up that 60 cycle hum and its harmonics is that the United States and I guess every country, but like, let's keep it specific to the United States, has three power grids. And there's the East Coast grid and the West Coast grid and Texas gets its own. Of course, Texas gets its own. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like sovereign all the way. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a surprise. And I'm not an electrical engineer, but as far as I understand it, the cause of this phenomenon is something like there's um, substations that all get linked together within a grid and they require energy, right? So when you turn the lights on, you're asking for more energy. And so it roughly presents itself at 60 hertz, but it doesn't actually ever really get stay on 60 hertz because each grid and each substation and collectively all of us have a variable rate of power consumption. So we're not always using, sometimes we're turning the lights on, uh, you know, when they're, when the Super Bowl happens, there's a little spike, right? Uh, when it gets hot and everyone turned their air conditioner on, there's a little spike. Well, essentially what you can do is, uh, pick up that mains, uh, that electricity going through your wall, uh, via the, the wall plug. And the transistors are generating that noise. And a lot of times we want to filter that noise out. But one thing that that they've learned is that you can uh, record that noise and then plot it out using uh, the frequency response. So basically you can imagine uh, the 60 hertz filter and then you filter its harmonics and then there's a line that goes up and down. And what people are doing to validate the time of a digital recording is they're continuously recording 12 hours of just the wall sound, of just your mains hum. And then then taking, uh, extracting that hum from a recording that uh, originates in something that was plugged into the wall. And sure enough, there's identical peaks and valleys. There's an identical shape that gets made. So how specific is that? Like, for instance, can you sometimes get the same shape 10 years ago on a certain date? Or is it like a fingerprint? 
10 years ago is a great question. So it's more like what you were saying uh, from before, but what you have to have is a reference recording. So this is the way it works. Let's say I'm creating a, an ENF, an electronic network frequency database, and I've got these 12-hour recordings, and I'm starting at midnight, ending at noon, starting at noon, ending at midnight. The extent to which I have access to the recordings of that mains hum, that enumerates the amount of uh, audio that I can validate. So if my personal database goes back 10 years, then we can do 10 years. Most people only have a couple of years under their belt. So it's based on on what you have, your analysis is that you have on your system? Someday there will be... I'm positive, like archive.org, shout out, um, an ENF global database that only records mains hums, but that day has not yet come. Got it. How would it find the mains hums from past dates? Would it just have to like get it from all the people who were working on this? No, it would have to get it from validated, time-stamped recordings from, from yesteryear. Um, so as long as something is plugged into the wall, congratulations, it is getting the mains hum. Okay, so it, they can get it. But what you really want for admissible and repeatable and and really kosher um, applications of this like audio authenticity inquiry is you want a good, stable, solid database of recordings, and then you and then you take the recording that you were provided. And you extract the 60-cycle frequency response, and then you compare it to your reference database. Got it. And then, sure enough, you can even do you could do this manually if you had an idea of what day you were talking about. And as long as you have several minutes, um, you'll see these like uh, you'll see the shape snap into place. Um, you'll create a spectrum readout and it will have an identical shape as the reference recording. And then you could say with a reasonable certainty that the recording happened on this day. But more interestingly, if there's omissions, so if if there's discontinuance in that recording process, that should also show up as long as you're getting good, clean ENF in a recording. So not only can it be used as a time validation tool, it can also be used to detect edits. Amazing. Because that shape uh, will have matched before and after a certain... God, you cannot hide from the future. No, you really can't. (laughs) Holy shit. Here's the thing. Not everything picks up ENF. Only things that are plugged into the wall. Like there's this really interesting research going on in Denver right now where where people are walking around with digital portable recorders and they're getting ENF off of cast registers and the hums from lights and all kinds of like, um, you know, like televisions that are, um, that are uh, blaring. It's really bad impression of it. It's, it's, it's not comparable to what you would get directly from recording it from the wall. But it's this really interesting thing. But it is floating around in the air. No, but just this just this idea that there's this signal out there and you can take a recording from any television station, from mm-hmm. any um, home video, especially if it's if it's uh, a corded one, 
And you can make all these assertions or like you can, you can determine something's lack of electronic network frequency. There's a, there's a famous case where the lack of stable results for ENF uh, helped prove that the recording took place off of a generator, for instance, uh, rather than in a situation where, you know, there was power coming from a grid. And people are even extracting ENF using really high speed cameras and um, office lights, and they're just filming a white wall at uh, really high quality at really fast speed. And sure enough, the, the tiny imperceptible fluctuations in the brightness of a light bulb were um, embedding ENF into the, into the video recordings. And that's, that's wild if you think about the implications of that. And in general, it's not... No hiding. Yeah, no, it's it, it's not a very um, widely employed, and to be honest, it's it's usually more in a, like an advanced law enforcement or intelligence uh, standpoint. But the fact that well, I mean, that is who you would hide from if you were hiding. Of course, of course, <laughs> it's an interesting thing, though. It's just like when you start to understand uh, a little bit more about something that just seemed. Like, who cares why it happens? Or you you give no effort or energy into understanding this phenomenon. And then you realize that it's, uh, that there's a lot of meaning that can be extracted from it. And it's the same, it was the same thing when I started really getting into spectral analysis. Like, I just don't, I think I don't understand how the waveform, uh, after like 1995 came to be like the, the digital um, shorthand for sound as like a scribbly line that tells you only how loud something is. When you start to go native in understanding the spectrogram, like your relationship to audio and audio recordings changes forever. And I recommend anyone who, who works in pro audio, whether they're dialogue editors, music producers, um, like whether they work in movies doing ADR, like spend time looking at spectrograms and you will be blown away. About spectrograms, um, admittedly, I haven't spent that much time with them, but we just put out a course on guitar uh, called Ultimate Guitar Production and um, with a producer named Andrew Wade. And in the guitar editing section, he uses a spectrogram to help clean up a DI. And it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It's so powerful. <laughs> I can't believe that I hadn't seen this uh, till now. I mean, I've seen them. I never saw just how deep you can go uh, with with it. Like I didn't. I was blown away. Most of the time, you can go to forty-eight thousand plus images across a second, and you know. 20,000 values uh, bottom to top. So yeah, you can you can get as deep and as detailed as you want. I know. I couldn't believe what he was doing with it. It was mind-blowing. So when you say that anyone who works in audio, whether they're a dialogue editor or a producer or you know whatever it is they do, that this is a tool that they should know about, I completely back that. There is literally 
an extra dimension available to you visually that you've been skipping. And it's the most important dimension because how loud something is, is secondary if it's audible. But what frequency something uh, embodies, that's the whole game. So when you see a transient and you've got a clip on your waveform, um, you can use your ears. You could, you could say, oh, that's a pretty bassy clip. But that bumpy line on your timeline is not going to really tell you much about what it is. And no matter what uh, DAW you're using, no matter what audio program you prefer, uh, almost without fail, there are there is some spectral readout. And not only that, but you can adjust the values and the windows, and you can um, zoom in and out well past the sample size. So if you're thinking about, um, look, I went so deep as to like editing the samples to get rid of my clipped audio, and that's how I fixed it. You realize within that sample, there's 20,000 possible values times silence to in the red. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's literally a world without end. And um, But what does that mean? It means that you now have access to the full impression of what is a sound doing. And once you start to notice that, like you don't even have to employ it in your, in your workflow. Um, it's a tool for perceiving uh, in a visual domain, what you're hearing with your ears, and you have to, and you can, and you allow yourself to stop uh, using poetry, essentially, to talk about sound, which is the way that we've always done it. Like when I was in bands in high school, we called it junt language, right? Uh, we're we're basically mouthing our, ourselves, like uh, we're doing the best that we can to not just hear things, but to add a dimension to that hear uh, to that hearing that where we can discuss it and talk about it. And as soon as you see a spectrogram that's been properly presented to answer the question that you're asking, um, there's no amount of description that I can give it. It's an aha moment. It's a eureka. Loud things can be bright and quiet things can be dark, or you can assign uh, any kind of color map that you want. And it goes left to right and low pitched is on the bottom and high pitched is on the top. And it's a self-evident and a self-actualizing um, display. And I've never been able to accurately match a waveform to what I'm hearing, except for on a macro scale. So like when, when someone starts yelling, you'll see a, th a thicker shape. And when things are compressed, it looks like toothpaste. You know what I mean? And like that's some degree of visual analysis that you can give to a recording. But it's so flaccid in the face of like what the spectrogram affords you. It's just like I can't, I can't stress it enough. Spend time inside the spectrogram. If you're working on an album, memorize that album's shape. Like, understand what happens when you're getting phase. Like, you can see phase. You know, also, just an example uh, of how Andrew was using it. Uh, he was using it to help clean up uh, DIs for guitars sure. that uh, that had, like, strings ringing out that weren't intended to be hit and noise yeah. and just... He was using it to completely eliminate that shit. Absolutely. I do that all the time. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, sometimes uh, somebody will, will call and say, hey, 
you know, like the headphones were a little bit too loud and you could kind of hear the the bass inside this guy's vocal track, but I don't want to filter it out because it kind of colors the lower registers of his voice. Well, you can see the, par- like we talked about those vocal formants before, you can see the parallel shapes. You can see that which is not a voice. Even if you can't train your ears to sort of unhear it, you can uh, train your eyes and the tool set to remove it uh, just by identifying it as not compliant with the shape that we're looking for, which is the guy's voice in this case. Because critical listening is such a big part of my life, um, sometimes like poor technique in a recording, like I'm a notorious fret scraping cringer. Like I can't deal with like, it sounds like like 10,000 little basketball players pivoting on somebody's guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've gone about the business of fixing some albums so that I can listen to them again by <laughs> making scrapeless versions of songs that I prefer to listen to. And you'll notice, and a lot of times these scrapes are louder than the, the, than, um, the note itself. And it can just uh, be as easy as like going in there, making a selection that highlights just the offending sound and then literally turning it down. Like You don't have to have any special magic editing chops. It's like identify that which you consider noise, turn that noise down, and in its wake is left uh, what you're looking for. And in when it's music, sometimes it can be really easy to do because music concentrates itself uh in like you can almost see the grid that something was recorded on when you're looking at it in a spectrogram and when i hear like whooshy frictive like shh sounds i see swarms uh forming up high and when i hear a percussive click or a transient like i see these these tiny broadband spires going across the entire frequency range. And when I hear somebody's voice, like I see that wobbly rake and being able to see that is valuable in and of itself because it it can inform what tools that you use. Even if you ditch the spectral readout and go back into the world of like fake knobs on a computer screen or hardware on your rig, um, having like a good foundation for understanding um, the spectrogram really is to kind of go native on frequency response. And uh, my brain isn't capable of just picking up a new dimension of 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 perception without um, being invited in, right? Like the spectrogram mm-hmm. affords me the ability to pay attention to and to tend to my own awareness of frequency. That makes perfect sense. So let me tell you about a situation that happened to me uh, and tell me how you would go about this. Uh, This was like in 2005 or something. This was a long time ago. Uh, I was working with a band and one night the vocalist called me and he was like, man, I need you to check something out for me. It's really important. I was like, it's like, midnight. He's like, it's really important. Can I come by? It's like, okay. So he came by and he said that he was sure that his wife was having people come in the house on a regular basis and that they were watching him. And so he set up recordings and he could swear that they were walking around the house and uh, outside 
and he wanted me to help clean up the recordings so that he could prove that they were there. So I put on the recordings, and they were just shitty noise. And he was like, you hear that? You hear that? There was nothing. There was nothing there. Uh, he was obviously being a psychopath. So, I mean, in that situation, you may have told him to leave. But say that you were handed something like that, but it was legit. Like, you need to identify footsteps or something, and it's just, there's tons of background noise, tons of static. It's a shitty recording. Uh, what do you do? Well, the first thing I would do is talk about a retainer <laughs> and uh, try to suss out how can I best help you and can I help you? Let's assume that I can help you and you want me to take your recording. I'd probably have to restate your question on the front end. Like, are the sounds present on this recording consistent with footsteps coming from outside or voices from the side yard? Okay. And I would try to get as much information as I could about where was this recorded and what recorded it? And then I would determine... So it was a Walkman. Okay, so I would... Uh, uh, oh, like a tape Walkman. So analog tape. Okay, great. So yeah. So now we're way back. And now we're in the OG audio analysis uh, when we're dealing with analog audio, which these are the people who my set came to replace now that everyone's dealing with uh, with digital audio. But regardless of what its format was... The best thing that I could do would be to uh, measure that Walkman and take exemplar recordings with it. Um, and if I have access to the actual place and I could more or less orient myself in the same way and create an exemplar recording that is consistent with the frequency response and the general noise, you know, gain levels and make a recording that could I could use as a reference recording that I could also validate, um, then I would uh, start creating that reference recording on site and then I would walk around and take it back to my lab and digitize both recordings and then begin comparing those recordings. And there's criteria that I would make for each of the, the recordings. So if they're both digital, though that criteria would be what are their file structures, what is their file header, um, what kind of EXIF metadata exists on it, what about uh, extended metadata, what about file properties. And then I would start going into the frequency response, like what's actually in the acoustic information or like the auditory information in that recording. And then I would determine whether the recording you gave me yielded consistent or inconsistent uh, qualities to the reference recording that I made. And that's the only thing that I could do is tell you with, in my, in my opinion, and I would quantify it by saying that it was a high degree of certainty or um, a reasonable degree of professional certainty. Um, there's different standards depending on how certain you are. But you're not saying, congratulations, there were... Men in black were at your house. <laughs> men in black were at your house. And I certify that someone was outside your house and I sign it and I sell you that report. That doesn't happen. Um because that's not admissible and, repeat and repeatable, and that's not good science. And I think that's what he was hoping for, right. too. So what I would do is say, I created this exemplar recording. I stomped around 
I spoke at this distance from the recording at this location, and I'd write it all down, I'd make notes, and then I'd uh, preserve those notes. And then ultimately, I would render an opinion as to whether I think um, the recording you gave me is consistent with my reference or is inconsistent with it. And if it was inconsistent with it, I would tell you that, and then you would really find no value in my report. That's way too scientific for this guy. Yeah. This guy just wanted me to tell him that uh, the the government was at his house running op- running operations. Then he needs a professional that has a different expertise than forensic audio. Like a psychiatrist. Yeah, that could be one. Or even just a friend to talk to would maybe help. Yeah. But um, that actually, um, the psychology component of what I do was was valuable in a way that I did not in the outset perceive. So um, if you're advocating for a client and let's say you've got this guy and he was caught doing X, Y, and Z and the government turns over in discovery recordings of him doing that, that either need new context so that you can re-understand them in a way that's that's uh, not very incriminating for him or um, you might hear from him in his like mental state that they can do anything these days. That was two different meetups. Um, they stitched it all together to make me sound bad. I wasn't even there. They got a voice actor. Um, there's all mm-hmm. different places that your mind can go in a paranoid state or like even just with, with um, insufficient rest, right? That it can be valuable to say, I'm your advocate. I'm on your side. And because you told me things, those words have impact in the world. And I got this expert. And he took a look at it. And he says that this is consistent with an unedited original recording. And therefore, in his opinion, with a high degree of certainty, this is what it purports to be. And so we need to get right with that. And then all of a sudden there's credibility there that, oh my God, when I say something to my lawyer, he takes me seriously, so I should stop telling him bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) And so them paying me money to do that dispassionate forensic analysis, what do I know? This could be edited material. Like I don't have opinions going into a job. I have opinions once I uh, turn my report in, once I do the job, right? So it's not my business to um, scoff at the validity of a question that I'm being asked. It's my job to determine whether my answer can be helpful to you. And I don't even know that in many cases. Like sometimes um, I'll turn over work product and I'll have no concept of what is or what is not valuable to someone. And they might say, oh my God, this changes everything. Uh, That tiny detail matters. Like that door shutting matters or whatever it is that that I've come to, including, uh, yeah, this recording checks out and your guy is crazy. That matters too, because it helps um, an advocate kind of have that come to Jesus moment with their client that they're willing to pay me to to help provide. Great answer. Um, all right, so we've been on for a while. I don't want to take up all of the rest of your day, and we have quite a few questions. Cool, let's do it. From listeners, so I want to I want to just get a few of these in. So, all right, first question is from Daniel Machayevsky, which is some time ago. My friend and also a good client asked me to help with the recording made with a weak phone. Microphone camera to use 
the material in court, or at least check if it was usable. I tried some EQing, noise removal, and whatever I had at the time, but the quality was so poor that I barely could understand anything, although the voice itself was quite audible. What process would you recommend to apply to get the most from a recording like this? As I don't do stuff like this professionally, what can you recommend as a minimal software requirement to do it well? So you've got audible recordings that are not intelligible. The first thing that you want to do is open it up in a spectrogram and get a good picture of what's going on with the voice and what's present in the recording that isn't the voice. Then Sometimes denoising and dereverbing can be really valuable, but the actual solution is going to be completely dependent on what makes it intelligible. And that's not always commensurate to what an audio engineer is trying to do, which is make it sound good or balance it. Uh, we're not looking for good sounding and balanced material. In my experience, the lower three or four vocal formants are often garbage because of the amount of interfering signal that's present in them. So if there's going to be noise that uh, decreases intelligibility, it's going to be on the lower end of the spectrum. So a lot of times sub 100, just like brick wall EQs, uh, just just totally get rid of that uh, loud humming can be very valuable. And then something like uh, the waves tools, the the noise removal um, can be valuable when you have a decent amount of interfering audio with the lack of a voice. So if you've got static that's coming, if you get a good two, three seconds of of noise with no signal in it. Um, a lot of times denoising modules can be really helpful, um, like waves, like uh, isotope. Now, the RX Advance is a, is, is a pretty um, hefty expense for somebody who's doing this casually. It is getting increasingly better at uh, denoising but oftentimes people over-focus on background noise removal when they're dealing with intelligibility improvements. And sometimes it can be something just as easy as very specific and very uh, metered uh, EQs. And in general, turning things up is not the road in to intelligibility improvements. It's almost always turning things down and removing signal that you don't want rather than trying to boost anything. But the ultimate arbiter of is something intelligible or not is going to be the people that you play it for, which is often, um, if it's an evidentiary hearing, it's a judge, or sometimes it's 12 of your peers on a jury. So sometimes if you've gotten something to where you are happy with the intelligibility with it, or you feel that the intelligibility has been uh, improved. I did not perceive the voices before, and I do now. Sometimes additional layers of information unrelated to your audio work are important, like creating a transcript, like making that synchronized transcript video as an exhibit where Basically, you're making a karaoke video where the word is uttered as you say it. 
If you're unable to get it to the point of intelligibility, then you need to, after a preliminary assessment, go back to your guy, your client, your friend, whoever it is, and tell them um, intelligibility improvements are basically not going to happen. There is no magic enhance button here. Or kick it up the chain to some of the gurus who are just like next level um, uh, intelligibility improvement audio enhancement specialists, um, which do exist. And a lot of times they're the same guys that fix expensive takes so that you don't have to get some A-list celebrity back into the ADR. Um, uh, it's the same skill set of finding a voice, removing that which is not a voice. Um, but there's no shortcut. But if you're not getting good, clear formats in your spectrogram that have good, clear separations between the background noise, then you're going to have to go in there and carve them out with, with gain. And it's not fun, and it's not for the faint of heart. And a lot of times people attenuate and color the audio with heavy-handed processing that does not, at the end of the day, increase intelligibility. So it's about using the right tools and making small changes all the time and being able to go back and forth between them and not committing too heavily to um, too much processing. But yes, Waves and Isotope are both. Also, I mean, if you can afford it, Cedar's not bad either. But we're not talking about denoising in Audacity. You know, I haven't (laughs) tried in Reaper, but uh, who knows, you know? No, the Isotope stuff is great. So, all right, here's a question from Bo Burchell. Let's say there's a fight caught on a cell phone video and you can hear a person holding the camera yelling, kill them, or something like that. How accurately can you confirm who the person is yelling and how would you do it? What are the indicators you would look for? I would look for indicators that the voice present on the recording is consistent with a validated recording. So acquiring an exemplar of that person saying kill him is the best possible thing that we can get. Absent that, uh, we can do voice comparison analysis of, of recordings of that person And we can say that the validated sample that we know to be that person is consistent with the recording that we have here. Um, There's other things that we could try to do, which is we could try to establish that the person who yelled kill them was in fact at a place in it and present for that recording. So just because somebody's device is recording something and you hear a voice that appears to be their voice, that tells you exactly that. But you can't jump to the conclusion that that person was there absent uh, other information. So did somebody see him there? Do you have any reason to believe that he wasn't? Things like that. And we're... uh, compiling all of this information, which informs our opinion. But the basic answer to your question is to get a good exemplar reference recording that you can compare to. Um, That way, it's not up to you and your magical ears to say that kind of sounds like the same guy, but it's about trusting the measurements that you made, that they're repeatable, and ultimately that they'll be admissible. Great answer. Uh, All right, this is another one from Bo Burchell. (laughs) <laughs> which is, he says, somewhat of a joke question, 
But what is the program that is most like the ones on TV where they keep hitting enhance on a ransom phone call to figure out where the call is coming from based on background noises in the call? The most like those? Yeah, if there is one. Okay, so I can't answer that specifically, but if you're talking about gaudy and outlandishly showy visualization of the, of an audio file, I'd say the cake has to be, or like that prize has to be given to Sony for their somewhat ill-advised uh, foray into audio analysis and professional audio, which is, I think it was called Spectra Layers. And essentially, it makes a three-dimensional spectral readout that you can change the access of. So you can like, it basically models a spectrogram uh, almost like the 3D spectral crawl in uh, Ozone and or like uh, some like awesome screensaver from an EDM uh, DJ or something. And it's laughable because in order to make those three-dimensional peaks and valleys... Um, like the peaks are often like purposefully obscuring those valleys so that you can get like a three dimensional readout and it looks damn cool and has almost no functional use. <laughs> and so the lack of that functionality is consistent with all of those cool enhance sequences, which I love. Well, they look great. Yeah, they look great, but they look even better if it's not like uh, a nerdy sort of like beardy white dude. But if you're like a goth girl with a like a kick-ass briefcase um, <laughs> and that like has blue undulating lights and, and like cool um, beeping sounds, like that's next level. <laughs> so that's not how it really is. Weird. So, all right, here's one from Eduardo Pando Salceda, which is uh, what kind of studies would I have to take to get into this type of work? And also, what's the hardest kind of audio you've had to clean? Those are all great questions. So let's assume it's today and it's 2019 and you're trying to get into this field. I'd say the first thing that you want to do is have some basis for business and a good understanding of what a sort of freelance life is. Because at present, audio forensic examiners are not in-house and they're not, unless you want to go work for the government, via con Dios. Um, but if you're trying to do what, I, what I'm doing, which is audio analysis for criminal defense attorneys, um, oftentimes you're going to be either for a, working for a small firm or uh, freelance getting uh, a, appointed or retained work. And so that's number one, which is think clearly about what the gig life is. Um, and then the first thing that you're going to want is not go to mastering school or go over to expressions and, and learn about uh, Ableton. That's not the answer. The answer is to get into um, acoustics and computer programming. Learn about MATLAB and verse yourself in it and then um get a computer science degree or a degree in acoustics. Um, actually, acoustics or some people opt to do undergrad uh, in, in the field of audiology and phonetics and, and things like that. And then there is a program in Denver at CU Denver, um, the National Center for Media Forensics. They've already graduated a couple of classes. It's super exciting and you can get a specific degree now, finally, thank God, 
in audio and video forensics or in media forensics. And so CU Denver and Catalin Grigoris is the guy who runs that program. And he's like Gandalf plus Yoda. <laughs> and, and he's the guy. And then you can find oftentimes like there will be only one or two audio forensic professionals in any given area. And it's about glomming on to them and extracting info <laughs> and geeking out and learning. But there is a community developing and there's young kids coming up under us. Um, and I'm very excited about that because it's more people, uh, better white papers, um, more weird, uh, you know, techniques and tactics and tools to to learn. And so the extent to which uh, people get interested in it and engage in it. Um, they're, they're, it's pretty wide uh, open right now for anyone to walk into if you have the interest and and the obsessive sort of attention to detail that's necessary to do this work. And a good place to start if you don't want to go to school, that is okay. Like if you're from America. Your government has the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And there's a subcommittee called the Scientific Work Group for Recorded Evidence. And they are the guys arguing about and then authoring the white papers from which we will all work. And, and we're in the process currently of developing the best practices and the, uh, the appropriate methods and so that stuff is open, it's available to you, and uh, the fact that there is a National Institute of Standards and Technology, should, should, you should find that to be very exciting because that's all of the information that you're going to get. And then if that's too in the weeds and you're more of a musician than an instrument maker, that's totally fine as well. Go get all of the tools. Um, go learn about DSP. Uh, get familiar with MATLAB, get familiar with Isotope, just do a lot, make a lot of poor quality reference recordings, uh, edit them and then try to detect that edits and then read the work of other people who are doing this. Uh, join the Audio Engineering Society and the subcommittee on uh, audio forensics. I'm going to Porto uh, for the for the conference on the subcommittee of audio forensics uh, next month. I'm super excited about that. That's sick. You know, there is a subcommittee of AES for this stuff and those people know what they're talking about. And there's a lot of academics and a lot of researchers and, you know, there's guys with patents from NASA. Like I'm more of a sewer rat in that uh, field because I'm out there answering my phone taking cases, writing reports, getting deposed, and doing expert witness testimony day in and day out. I absolutely need the academics in my ecosystem, but you don't have to be one to do this work. Like what you have to do is make yourself valuable and then develop a way to make admissible and repeatable work that that answers questions. And if you can do that, then you can find your way in audio forensics. And it's crazy exciting. There's not really the type of gatekeeping that other fields seem to have uh, because it's a self-selecting niche. And probably also because it's so new. Yeah, that's right. At least the way it is now, yeah. Getting in on the ground floor. The fact that I've been doing this as long or longer than the available tools uh, is is really great. But also the fact that that in the analog domain, people had been 
already uh, focused on this work and they've developed best practices that persist even as we've changed the method that we're recording things. So if you get if you have a reel-to-reel tape or a micro cassette, I'm going to digitize that. There are people probably out there still who are more qualified to analyze that stuff. But now that the digital recordings are commonplace as far as recorded evidence is concerned, if you are the type of guy who would obsess about getting the bleed out of your drums, then you're the type of guy that would excel at intelligibility improvements. You have to be impervious to repetition. Yeah. So I always said that it takes a a certain type of person to be able to listen to one song over and over and over and over and over again. But I think it takes even more of a niche person to do that same thing, but with 20 seconds of audio. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, like you said, it's self-selecting. Here's one from Nathaniel Garza, which is, is there anything you can't do to an audio clip because it would make it not admissible in court or would elicit reasonable doubt in a jury that your average person would normally think is okay? Turning things up. You don't turn things up. You don't introduce new signal that wasn't there before, you only turn things down. When you turn things up, you have to document it and note it, and you can never purport to be playing something that's a native source material if it's not. So your work product is not evidence. It's your testimony that's evidence. So if you ever produce something, if you sweeten something, if you make it sound better, get rid of the HVAC, then that needs to be disclosed and it and it can't be produced as if this were uh, the native source material. Besides that, mm-hmm. most of the time, the evidence is the bad recording that was given to me. And then the new evidence that we produce is my opinion as an expert witness. And it's not, uh, it's for the jury to decide or the judge to decide uh what that evidence is and what it purports to be and whether um, whether they have the same opinion after they've seen both versions or whether their opinion has changed. So turning things up, like if it's too loud, turn it down is okay. If it's too quiet, turn it up, um, starts to enter the realm of tampering. Got it. All right, here's one from... Pekka Vatanen, which is, how difficult is it for someone to forge an audio recording and do such a good job that it could be used as evidence in a court of law? (laughs) It's easier than you would assume. Figure the better you are, the easier it is. The better that you are, the easier it is. So oftentimes when you're trying to make a convincing edit, you're lying about the life cycle of that recording more so than the content of the recording. So um, inconvenient portions of a recording are often excerpted. And there's all different kinds of ways to excerpt that stuff. And if you're doing this well and you're effectively trying to evade my detection, you're going to keep in your mind what is the story of this file not just of the recording that that's on the file, but the actual file itself. What is its file structure? If you open it up in a hex editor, what is its header? Um, what information could have been introduced through my um, 
editing that I'm unaware of. Um, recompression is, is something that can be uh, detected. You have to pay attention to little things, like how many channels are present on my recording. Am I turning in a doctored 44-1K stereo recording that purports to be a telephone conversation? Because if so, then I should be sending in a mono 8-bit GSM and not a PCM wave, things like that. So oftentimes um, people crossfade nicely and they listen to their edits and continue to doctor the the recording uh, until they are sufficiently as a as a, a attentive listener um, pers- persuaded that this is kosher and there's nothing wrong so that's the minimum baseline that you're going to do is you're going to get that seam out of it then you're going to open it up into a spectrogram and you're going to uh, analyze uh, what are the properties of this? You're going to look at the bit depth of it. You're going to see, is there anything in this recording inconsistent with the original? Um, a little thing that people don't know when they're compressing audio is that if you're producing an MP3, not only do you get that frequency compression, that little bump uh, that you can see up in the higher ranges past 10K, uh, that degradation, but you're also going to get what what are called zero points, um, complete silences for for fractions of a second at the very beginning of them, like 500 samples or something like that. And if we're doing 8,000 or even worse, 44 one, um, then those 500 samples are going to be imperceptible to the viewer. But if you're dealing with a digital audio recording, there should be no zero points. So if you see anything that doesn't contain any frequency response, it didn't come from a a recording. It came from uh, a process, like a computer process. So uh, these are things that, that doctoring audio engineers aren't necessarily thinking about and would be wise to think about if they're trying to evade detection is not only the audio response of the material, of the acoustic material or auditory material captured on that computer file, but how it exists as a file as well. And sometimes that can be a road in. It's like, man, I I made that edit sound real good, but I didn't know that I was introducing these detectable artifacts uh, that were unrelated to the the sound. Got it. All right. Last question. I just think this one's we haven't covered this too much, and I, I just think it's good. This will round things off nicely. This is for people who actually want to go into this field, um, and the realities of it. So this one's from Daniel Bush, and he says, how do you or does anyone sustain income from this work, i.e., do people seek you out because you're, quote-unquote, the guy, or do you have a network of repeat clients? Does the government pay? How does that work? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All of that. So uh, I can only speak for myself um, and how I've done it and could show somebody how to do it. Now, I'm positive that if you joined the military and had a deep-rooted passion for audio analysis that you could find gainful employment and make yourself very, very valuable. I have just right at zero interest in any of that or really working for the Department of Justice or, or, or anything like that. Oftentimes, those are the guys 
cross-examining me. Mm-hmm. So assuming that you're one of the very small minorities, so every time I go to a training course or engage at all with the forensics community, there's a couple of kind of flashy, wacky guys out there trying to get as much press coverage as possible. And then there's there's quiet guys who don't talk about Fight Club or what agency they're they're with. And then there's the defense guys. And that's that's what I am, really. And we do two different types of work. Fight Club, amazing. Yeah, you don't talk about it, right? Like, like what job? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> you don't talk about Fight Club. Like, <laughs> like, I'm not, information comes to me and not from me. And they're great. Like, they... They pay very close attention to the uh, workshops and whatnot. But for me, I haven't so far really done a lot of advertising because I need to manage the amount of work that I do and make sure that I'm doing good work. And there's only, you know, one hour per hour uh, that I have available to me. I run a pretty small operation that's like one to four people um, at most. And so, but... As far as sustainability is concerned, there's two different roads in. And one type of work is appointed work um, where your boss or like the people who actually hire you are the courts. And appointed work comes when uh, I work with a lot of panels. And so like there's a federal public defender. And in in the instance of a multi-defense uh, like when there's a lot of guys, like a whole gang of people get arrested, um, there's a conflict where the, you can't have one public defender representing all of them because their interests might not all align, right? Some of them will snitch, some of them didn't do it, some of them did. And because of these different incompatibilities, then they should have different advocates. So what happens is the the U.S. government through the Criminal Justice Act uh, or sometimes through contracts with local um, like counties and cities and whatnot, they hire private defenders. They hire pay lawyers to do court work. You know, when you get arrested, it says, uh, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you. I work and come as a package deal with the one that will be provided to you sometimes. And because of that, it's a lot of, a lot of times it's indigent work and it, you get a lower rate. It's not like the, the awesome, uh, retained work that you get from private companies. Um, but what you get from that is stability and you get a treasury check from the court itself and you get a court order that says, you know, Brian shall be paid X, Y, and Z and he shall turn this work in and you will get your money. And unfortunately for that retained work, that money comes in the form often of a check from the bar association or from, uh, like the treasury. And so you're literally to get paid sometimes waiting for a, uh, like a tax return check. It's a drag, uh, especially when the government shuts down and then you start worrying about money. Wait, so your clients aren't the ones paying you? No, no. In retained work, your client appoints you. Ah, okay. So they say, I'm Brian, I've got my client, and I want to appoint you as a audio forensic expert and judge, this is why I need it, this is why it's important for me, and the problem is, is that the HVAC was on, and I need to know what my guy said. And the judge says, approved. 
Like, Brian shall clean this recording up. He shall produce a transcript and turn it over to the defense. Uh, it is so ordered. And you get that insurance policy of knowing that there is literally a court order that says you will get paid. But the problem with it is that you don't know when that's coming because sometimes Got you're it. waiting for a damn treasury check. <laughs> and so the court is your client, but the person that you're talking to and working on behalf is a appointed attorney. And just like that attorney, you're appointed. And they do this because they get um, appointed to the panel and that's like... Uh, a lot of times it's in line with their, you know, policies and their politics that they do a certain amount of pro bono work and they do a certain amount of appointed work. But then there's this entire other world out there that deals with referrals and direct payments of retainers, and that's the private retained work. And so you you need a healthy balance of the private retained work that can be lucrative and you don't necessarily know when it's going to be coming, but the more help that you are to the more uh, attorneys, like the, the better the outcomes of the cases that you work, the more retained work that you'll get. And that tends to be um, more stable um once you've gotten the job, but the retained work uh, tends to come in fits and starts. So I get more steady projects from appointed work than I do retained, but the retained work is more lucrative, if that makes sense. Got it. Yes. And so getting yourself to the point where you have a steady diet of that, it will necessitate a willingness to make a file format conversion or help somebody with their disk or like help somebody access even a recording from some weird system from like some pole cam or security ancient like Panasonic, like auto player. Um, and so becoming helpful to attorneys who don't have access to their um, recordings, that's money in the bank because um, if you allow them access, then they're going to be reviewing their discovery and then they're going to ask you questions about it. And that's where work generates from is your ability to be helpful as it relates to recordings. So um, steady diet of appointed and retained work and a lot of hustle. Be of value as with everything. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not out there um, doing a lot of advertisements and and asking for a lot of um, uh, paid work. There's good money in public-facing forensics companies, but in my experience, the people who are out there hungry for it in public are often... Um, looking to work on behalf of the media where they're making assertions that aren't necessarily bound for the court of law. But that's really good money, apparently. And it's that's not what I'm interested in doing. Um, and I definitely don't want people to just call me out of the blue and ask me uh, questions about uh, th their recordings because, A, I don't have as much confidence that those people are uh, legitimate clients. And then, B... Um, your lawyer can find me. And that's kind of the way it's worked for me. Other people might have different approaches, but I really do focus on word of mouth retained uh, work and, and then court appointed work to augment that. I can confirm that talking heads get paid real well. <laughs> 
Um, I know that, uh, for instance, uh, CNN or Fox or whatever, any of those news networks, uh, they put these people on retainer, uh, a yearly retainer, basically. Um, you know, and it's their expert, quote unquote, experts from all different kinds of fields, like you know, intelligence expert, forensics expert, like all that. And and the, the pay is six figures yeah. for that if you're one of their regular people. Um, I know of one person who uh, is a friend of somebody I know. He does this for one of the networks. Uh, he gets three hundred grand a year to just appear for five minutes. When they need him, right, and opine on whatever the next Trayvon happens, or like or yeah, whatever it is, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. And that's a way to do it. And I think it's especially uh, distaste. Like I, I have an allergy to it when people identify <laughs> yeah. themselves as experts, because I don't know about other fields, but in my field, in the field of audio forensics, like the only person who qualifies you as an expert is an, is a judge. So you don't call yourself one. You are deemed to be one when somebody looks at you. In that situation. Right. And so I'm not out there as an expert. I'm out there as an examiner. Got it. It's a good distinction. So when you find somebody who calls themselves an expert, they're looking for private clients and to talk to the news. And that's okay. You know, I'm not here to knock anyone's hustle, but those aren't the same guys active with the scientific work group, um, reading the white papers, like following the leads. It's a different career. And it's a different practice as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Brian, uh, I think this is a good place to to finish it off but thank you for coming on yeah, of course. thank you yeah. for taking the time it's been awesome talking to you i'd love to have you back on in like a year year and a half once and just see how things are going absolutely at that point i'll be a new dad and uh probably still kind of keeping on but there's a couple of advancements that i'm really looking into like at some point i would like to talk uh we didn't even get into uh, the larger questions of authenticity and like, or the incoming onslaught of deep fakes and things like that, which is all super interesting. <laughs> I would love to talk about that. So yeah, next time you come on, we'll, we'll talk about that stuff and then whatever advancements you've made. And yeah, yeah, awesome. I think it'll be great. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Jay-Z Microphones. For over a decade, Jay-Z Microphones has combined all the critical elements of world-class microphone manufacturing, patented capsule technology, precision electronics, and innovative industrial design. Jay-Z Microphones' deep understanding of technology is informed by their open-minded, innovative approach. Trust us, sound can be glorious. Recording. For more info, please go to jzmike.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.